just pray. I just want to want to um, ask the Lord to open our hearts and make us receptive to His Word this morning. Lord, we're so grateful um, for all that You do in our lives this morning. Lord, we come honouring You and lifting Your name and putting You in, in first place in our lives. And this morning, Lord, we pray that Your Spirit would open people's hearts, make us receptive to Your Word, and speak to us in ways that we have not been spoken to before. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't know if you recall, but a few months ago, um, Andrew spoke about uh, Luke 20. And in Luke, it's a bit echoey, I wonder. Is there, um, is it too high? Sorry. Uh, in Luke 20, the Pharisees were trying to trip Jesus up a wee bit. And they said to him, hey, is it lawful for us to give um, tribute to Caesar, taxes to Caesar. And they were trying to, try to trick him up a wee bit. Um, Jesus said, um, show, show me a, a coin. So they gave him a denarius, which is worth about a day's wages in those days. And on the coin was the image of Caesar, and there's an inscription on the coin, which, which translated says, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. Right, so there was a claim to divinity in that on that coin. And so the Pharisees were trying to trip Jesus up and saying, okay, well, if we're going to give tribute to Caesar, then, then that, if you say that we're supposed to give taxes to Caesar, then that implies that, that we're supposed to give tribute to his divinity. And if Jesus had said yes, then they would have said, well, how can you be a, um, a teacher of the, of, the, of the scripture, of the law, if you're telling us this? But on the other hand, if Jesus said no, then the Herodians, which were kind of the um, um, resistance arm of the, of, the, of the Jews back then, would have, would have said, oh, Jesus is inciting uh, the Jews to rebel against the Romans. So Jesus' answer was going to be, it couldn't be, um, he couldn't win. It's like, it's like me asking Paul, hey, do you still beat up your wife, Paul? You know, because if he said no, then that implies that he used to. And if he still says yes, well, clearly he's still doing it. So there was, there was no right answer all right, to that question. But Jesus handled it beautifully. And he said, well, whose image is on that coin? Whose inscription is it about? And they said, well, well, Caesar's. And he said, well, you give to Caesar what's due to Caesar's, and you give to God what's due to God. Because whose image is stamped on me, on, a, on us? God's, God's image, right? So um, Caesar's image on the coin, give to him what's due to him. Coins, you can give him his, co yeah, his coins. But the image that's stamped on us is God's, and so we give ourselves to God. And then um, Andrew referred us to today's scripture, Romans 12.1, which says, Therefore I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Um, and verse 2 goes on to say, Do not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So what do we owe God? We owe ourselves, our bodies, ourselves as a living sacrifice. Now, you talk about the living sacrifice, he's contrasting it with the sacrifices that were offered in the Old Testament, where they would, they would put aside these, uh, an animal, the best of the herd, put them aside ready for the day of sacrifice, and then they would um, put them on the altar, kill them, and, and offer them to God as a sacrifice. 
because the Bible says that without blood there's no remission of sins. So that was the intention of the, of the uh, sacrifice in the Old Testament. In this new covenant, in this new testament, we're to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. The Bible says alive, a living sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God. And the thing is, we've already been set apart, right? We don't need to be set apart anymore because Christ has done everything that he needed to to make us clean and holy and pure, ready for that living sacrifice, right? Now, um, the reason I want to dwell on the scripture a little bit and unpack it is because right at the beginning of it, there's a word, therefore. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters. Whenever you see a therefore in scripture, you've got to think, why is it therefore? What is it therefore? Um, and so you have to look a wee bit earlier into, into Romans to understand uh, the context and why Jesus, um, uh, why Paul brought that scripture. So first of all, I have to say that Rome was a hotbed of sin at the time, right? There was a, it was a bed of wickedness. Um, in Romans 1, we start to read a little bit about it, um, about the sin in Rome. It was being filled with fornication, wickedness, covetedness, maliciousness, envy, murder, deceit, backbiters, haters of God, spiteful, proud, boasters, disobedient to parents. Actually, I think I read all of that in that paper this morning. It's like that in New Zealand at the moment, isn't it? Uh, so it was, a, it was a hotbed of sin, and that's probably why Paul was saying to the to, to the church, don't be conformed to this world. This age is the is the literal trans, trans the literal translation. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what's good and acceptable to God. So that that was Rome at the time. Paul had never visited Rome, but he had um, good intentions of going there, and that's why he was sending this letter in preparation for a for a visit. He was hoping to go to Jerusalem first, then Rome, and then on to Spain. Um, yeah, you should be aware in, in Acts 18 we read about a, a couple called Priscilla and Aquila who uh, Paul met and in Romans 18 it, it tells you that they were exiles from Rome because Claudius, Emperor Claudius had expelled all of the Jews from Rome he was anti-Jewish so he had sent all of the Jews out of Rome and they were exiles and it was only a year or two before Paul wrote to them that they were allowed back in after Claudius had died and a new emperor, Nero, had come into power. And Nero was, he liked the Jews because they were good businessmen. He, he thought they would be good for the city. So at that point, the church was largely run by the Gentiles in Rome. Okay, so this is all background to, to Paul's letter to the Romans, right? The church was run by the Gentiles. The Jews were starting to trickle back in, but they weren't being made particularly welcome. Because the Gentiles thought that they were the new Israel. The Jews had blown it. They'd rejected Jesus, and so the Gentiles were given the chance to, to be the new Israel. And so they had a dim view of the Jews. There was tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. Um, the other thing was the Jews were ten, had a tendency to be legalistic. They liked to follow rules, and that's their culture and their background, right? A lot of rules. I don't know if any of you have been to Israel I've been a few times on business uh, in, a, in a past job. Um, on the Sabbath, you go into the lift for, uh, to go to your floor. Um, it's pre-programmed. It will stop at every floor 
open the doors and it will come down as, as it's coming down it will stop at every floor and open the doors and this is so that you don't have to push a button on the sabbath um, this is to cater to the orthodox jews in israel so it's all about rules it's all about legalism um, and that permeated the jewish church uh, in those days but the gentiles on the other hand were prone to license what we call license they believed that the grace of god covered a whole bunch of sin all right? They could do pretty much what they like, but the grace of God would, would rescue them from that. And so Paul needed to deal with two things here, the legalism of the Jews, the license of the Gentiles, and a third thing, the tension that those differing views brought about between the Jews and the, and the Gentiles. Uh, okay, so let's, if you have a good look through Romans... Um, I'm just going to give you a brief overview of the book, but that's that's the background to it, all right? So the first few chapters, Paul talks about the sin in Rome, but he reminds both sets of readers, the Jews and the Gentiles, that we're, we're all sinners in God's sight. Okay, that's how Rome starts. That's how Romans starts. And then he talks about how the, both the Jew and the Gentile are justified by faith. The same blood saves both there's no reason to argue over who's more important the jew or the gentile and in chapter six and seven he deals with this this issue of the legalism of the jews and the license of the of the gentiles and then um in chapter eight he describes how liberty in the spirit unites jews and gentiles okay we're getting the picture so far then from 835 through to about romans 12 3 it's a block of scripture that there's been a large debate about. Some people don't even think Paul wrote it, but it does fit beautifully and, and it's crucial to the book of Romans. First of all, Paul, Paul is saying how uh, nothing can separate us from, from uh, the love of God, but clearly there's an implication that the Jews are separated from the love of God because they've rejected him. Um, not by Paul, this is people generally accepting that the Jews have rejected them and, and, and aren't there anymore. They're, not, they're out, of, out of the purposes of God. So he starts in 8.35 and, and through to 12, he gives a, an extraordinary lecture on God's attitude to the Jews. First of all, he says um, at the beginning of uh, chapter 9, how disturbed he is by the Jews being um, separated from the will of God, from his purposes. He would, he would rather be confined to hell than allow his people to be, to continue to be separated um, from God. But he reminds his readers that God isn't finished with the Jews. He's got a big plan for him. Even though they rejected him, God isn't finished with them. He calls the Gentiles the sons of Abraham by faith. Right? The sons of Abraham by faith. So they're not, um, they're not linked ancestrally to Abraham, but they are by faith. That's what he says. That's usually a term reserved for the Jewish people. But he's saying to the Gentiles, don't be proud because the Jews were cut off and they were grafted and the Gentiles were grafted in. For the Gentiles will, will also be cut off if they don't continue in God's kindness. So there's a, a recurring theme through those chapters. In Romans 11:18, talking to the Gentiles, do not boast. In 11:20 says, don't be high-minded. In 12:3 says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. It's a message for all of us. We can't take for granted God's mercy on us. Um, there's, yeah, it's up to God. If you look in the Old Testament, 
you've got Esau and Jacob, you've got um, uh, Isaac and Rebekah. Uh, there are instances where Jewish tradition dictates one thing, but God has chosen completely to go an opposite direction. So Esau was the firstborn. He should have had the, the blessing, the father's blessing. He should have had two. He should have had double the inheritance that Jacob had, but Jacob pretty much ran away with it all. Why did God bless Jacob? He was a bit of a rogue. He stole the birthright from his brother. Um, and yet God knows who was the best um, brother to be the ancestor of the, of the Jews and ultimately Jesus, right? God knew in advance. So he chooses who he chooses, irrespective of what man says or what logic says or what uh, our, um, our laws might tell us. So... We're all subject to God's mercies. We're all sinners, whether Jew or Gentile or anybody who walks in the door. We're all subject to God's mercy. And it's not, not for us to judge. It's not for, for us to think ourselves higher than anybody else. All we need to do is rely on God's mercy. And as Romans 1.12.1 1 says, because of the great mercy God has shown us, offer our lives as a living sacrifice to him an offering that is only for God and pleasing to him. Considering what he's done, it's only right that we should worship him in this way. That's the, the easy-to-read version. I beg you, brothers and sisters, because of this great mercy that God has shown us, offer our lives as a living sacrifice to him. Right? So that's the background. That's why the therefore is, is therefore. You can you think about the context of Romans, that, that cultural thing that was going on, the... Uh, Claudius, the hotbed of sin, uh, the tension between the Jews and the Gentiles, and that's the purpose of Paul's letter to the Romans in preparation for a visit later on. Now, we're going to reveal what the title of the message, Golf Ball Theology, is all about. Give me a second. Just have to get a bit closer to the mic to make sure you can see what's going on. Okay. I have some golf balls here from an op shop, 50 cents each. Happy to offer them for resale at 70 cents each if you want, because I don't play golf. So I'm gonna, I put a few golf balls in a, in a container and you can see that's, the container's full, right? It's overflowing with golf balls. Everyone agree that's, that's full, right? But what happens? If we take a few pebbles and, and put those in there, put it over the container so I don't spill any. Okay, we've fitted a few pebbles around the golf balls, haven't we? All right. Well, who would agree that's now full? I have some disagreement out there. All right. Let's see, what happens if we, we add some sand to it? There we go. Oh, look, it's filling up even more. There was room for a bit more, wasn't there? Erica and I made a special trip to the beach this morning to get some sand. <laughs> so this is a, a picture of our lives. We have our golf balls, our big rocks in our life. that are the really important things that occupy our time and our effort most. And that's usually around job, family. Sometimes it's stuff that doesn't matter a lot, but it's really important to us, like sports or 
or, or something like that, that that occupies our lives. And then there's the minute of life, the sand and the pebbles, the things that take up a lot of our time but don't, you know, and they might be nice or they might be mundane, but they fill our lives, right, and make, make our lives very full. Um, and the thing is with being Christians and offering our, ourselves as a living sacrifices, the big ones really need to be rocks of eternal value. If we're spending all our time um, earning wealth in order to have things, cars or TVs or houses or, or whatever it is, if we're spending all our time doing that, it's got, it hasn't got eternal value. If, um, but on one hand... Shall I work more or shall I spend time with my kids? Shall I work more or shall I spend quality time with my kids? Okay, well, what do you think? No one on their deathbed has said, oh, I wish I'd worked more, <laughs> right? Let's choose things, the big rocks in our lives that have eternal value. The other stuff, it's trivial. It doesn't mean a lot. So when we're offering our bodies as a living sacrifice, we're thinking about what are the things in my life, let's take stock, what are the things in the life that occupy most of my time and effort right now? Do they have eternal value? And if not, let's, let's recast it, let's rethink about the priorities in our life and make, um, make that a priority. One thing I, I should point out to you is that <clears throat> if you fill your life with the trivial, You've got no room, for the, no room for the big ones, right? So, that's another lesson. Golf ball theology. It's the way. So, um, being a living sacrifice isn't become, about becoming a nun or joining a monastery. It's about picking the things to spend our time and our effort and our money on that have eternal value. If we fill our lives with stuff that doesn't matter, we won't have time to invest in the things that have eternal value. Mm -hmm.